Good morning, Pacific Hope Church. You may be seated for a moment. For those of you visiting us this morning, as a church, we practice expository preaching, which means we take a book of the Bible and we seek to declare the whole counsel of God, the majesty of Christ through each and every verse. Over the last six weeks, Pastor Robert has laid a foundation for us as we've moved through 1 John. And today we find ourselves at verse 18. But before we go there, I just want to remind us, and for those of you who are here for the first time, help us understand what we've learned so far. We've learned that John's purpose statement is spelled out in this book. And verse, chapter 5, verse 13 tells us, John says, I write these things that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The purpose statement here is that we who have come to know Jesus Christ might have assurance that he has solved for us our greatest needs, our greatest predicaments. The human condition is, is summarized in, in some, by some in saying that we have three adversaries, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And as we've moved through this study, we've seen that Christ has provided a remedy for each of these, first and foremost in the flesh. The flesh is, is that which is natural to us, that which is sin. We began this book by, by John making the declarative statement, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But just a verse or two after that, John declares for us that we have assurance because that sin problem can be addressed through Jesus Christ. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then last week, we, we talked a little bit about the world. We were warned about the world. We saw in verses 15 through 17 that for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, spoiler, in chapter 5, John declares to us that we have overcome the world. Verse 5 of chapter 5 says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And that, that third adversary that we have is that of the accuser, the deceiver, the devil. But don't worry, he's defeated too. And in the text that we'll see today, we're, we're warned that that adversary is active. But yet again, we're given assurance that Christ provides our solution for that. With that in mind, knowing this, let's continue our study beginning at verse 18. If you would please stand to revere God's holy and infallible word. We'll read together. I'll begin at verse 18. We'll read through verse 27. This is God's word. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all, that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. This ends the reading of God's word. Please remain standing as we pray. Father God, we come before you in need of your word, in need that your word work on our, heart, on our hearts. 
God, I pray that you would prepare each mind, each heart to receive your word this morning. Pray, Lord God, that you would quiet any distractions inside our hearts or, or external around us, Lord God, that we might hear from you and that you might be seen plainly. Above anything else declared in this text, may the name of your son Jesus be exalted. May the work that he has done on our behalf be made clear. I pray this through the power of your Holy Spirit in that name that is matchless. Jesus' name, amen. Now you can be seated. As we move through the letter that John writes here, his first epistle, it would seem at first glance that, that this epistle, unlike some of Paul's letters, are just a bit devoid of Old Testament. We don't find those passages where John says clearly, it is written. And John doesn't take us back to the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean that it's missing. In fact, we have to remember that, that John himself waited for the arrival of Christ. John himself, a a follower of John the Baptist was introduced to Christ and he took with him all of his knowledge of Scripture. And John then, with this understanding of Scripture, had the opportunity to walk with the God-man, to talk with the God-man, to experience the presence of the God-man, and then to declare to us with great conviction, with great assurance, who this Jesus was. So while John doesn't point us back to specific texts, I want to start our morning out together with a quick glance at 1 Samuel chapter 6. We won't read it all, but I would invite you to open your Bibles to that, just to fact check and follow along and see what we would understand from this passage as it unfolds. So here in, in this passage, we find Samuel, a prophet of God, being told by God to go to the unlikely town of Bethlehem. And he goes to Bethlehem with specific instructions to seek out and to anoint one who would be the king of Israel. And he goes, and in verse 6, we find the, the prophet Samuel, and he's been introduced to Jesse, and Jesse's sons are being brought before Samuel. And in verse 6, it says, When they came... Samuel, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, so, so we're understanding that this anointment that's happening is David is about to be anointed, but this first guy that Samuel has before him, that's not him. And we move down a couple of verses. In verse 10, it says, And Jesse made his seven sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. And he sent and brought him in. And he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, as good students of God's word, we know that we have to be careful when we grab a text and we use it eisegetically to layer over what we're about to study. So I want to tell you that's not what we're doing. But there's a biblical concept here that we have to understand, and John would have had this in mind. What does this anointing mean? Right throughout the Old Testament, there was different anointings. They would take oil and they would put it on people or, or places or even things. But there's something particularly emblematic about this anointing. And so I'd like you to, those of you who are note takers, to make note of three things that will help us as we understand this morning's text. This morning's text would bring up in several different ways the word anointing. The first thing about anointing, especially in the case of David here, is that it represents God's unlikely sovereign election. You catch that? His unlikely sovereign election. Samuel went to Bethlehem, an unlikely place, and he goes to Jesse, and he picks Jesse's youngest, most unlikely son. He was tending the sheep. 
And, and secondly, an anointing symbolizes a purposeful consecration. What does that mean? That's a Sunday word, right? Purposeful consecration, set aside for a particular purpose. This shepherd boy was to be king of Israel. And thirdly, and you see this in in verse 13, this anointing symbolizes the indwelling or the abiding of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? It says, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So with these three things about anointing in mind, unlikely sovereign election, purposeful consecration, and Holy Spirit residence, we'll understand that the people of Israel were waiting for that anointed one. In fact, the anointed one that would come from David's line, the promised one was referred to as the anointed or the Christ. That Christ is who John wants us to have in full view as we read this passage. Let's go back to today's text. After a brief detour to the Old Testament, right? We come back and we're at verse 18. Some of you have Bibles that have headings. These headings were not part of the original text, but they were added. Mine, for example, says, Warning Concerning Antichrists. Now, for those of us who have been around church for a while, our ears perk up. We're like, ooh, we're going to talk about eschatology. We're going to talk about the Antichrist. And then right after that, we get, children, this is the last hour. Ooh, now we're really excited, right? We're going to talk about end times. But I'm just going to let you off easy on this one. We're going to be talking about the anointed one today. We're going to be talking about Christ. And certainly as John's readers got his letter, their ears might have perked up. But just like we do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we proclaim Christ. He's the anointed one. We'll learn some other things along the way, and and without a doubt here, John wants to warn those in the church of those who would come opposing the anointed one of God, opposing the Christ. Let's uh, pick up at verse 18 of John, 1 John chapter 2. John writes, children, It is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, uh, there's many things that could be said about this text. We, We know from Scripture that Antichrist is discussed in numerous passages. Some of the men gathered this week and looked at some of those texts. Daniel chapter 9, for example. Daniel chapter 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation chapter 13. They talk about Antichrist with a a capital A. Perhaps a a person who would be one to deceive, if it were possible, the elect. Throughout Christendom, there's been a a tendency to to look at and try to figure out who this Antichrist is. And if you think we're going to talk about that this morning, we're not. It's not the Pope it's not Mikhail Gorbachev. It's, it's not Vladimir Putin, right? And John's not actually talking about a specific Antichrist. He's talking about one who is opposed to the anointed. He says, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. And John combines this with a statement that he says, it is the last hour. There's nothing speculative about his comment here. He's not, well, maybe this is the last times. Maybe it is. Right? No, he says that with certainty. Why? Because he was likely at the feet of Jesus as Jesus taught. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 24? Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 3, on the Mount of Olives, the Christ, the anointed, the one who would come from the line of David, who would fulfill all three of the criteria that we would see, the unlikely sovereign election the powerful, purposeful consecration and Holy Spirit residence, that one, he's making this statement. Here's what he says, beginning at verse three. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? For those of you still flipping pages, we're at verse four. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars 
and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations." And then the end will come. Now, if we go through this and we want to do a, a checklist, right? Do we have wars? Do we have rumors of wars? Do we have famines? Do we have earthquakes even this week? Do we have tribulation for believers and some being put to death and hated for his namesake? Indeed, we do. And do we have some who are falling away and is there betrayal and hatred towards one another? And are there false prophets leading many away? Yes. But for me, the most compelling thing about John's statement, knowing that we're in these last times, is verse 14. It says this, And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. We are proclaiming that gospel now. We'll continue proclaiming that gospel until the next time comes, and that's gospel realization. Okay, right now, gospel proclamation. Later, gospel realization. We'll get to talk about that a bit next week. But one thing's for certain, based on what John heard Christ say, these are the last times. And one of the things, one of the hallmarks of these last times, as Jesus said, is that many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So with that context, we'll go back to 1 John chapter 2. John declares that which he heard from Jesus. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. And so now many Antichrists have come. And again, in your own mind, just take that word Antichrist, and I'll tell you that the word itself in Greek, it's only used five times. And all five times are by our brother John. We find it in, in 1 John. In fact, we'll go through these real quickly together just so we understand what we're talking about when we see Antichrist. Okay, so we have in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, just a couple verses down, John defines it, says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Okay, so we're not talking about some mysterious figure here. We're talking about any person in a general sense who denies the Son. And he who denies the Son also denies the Father. John, later in the same book, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, gives us a slightly different definition. He says, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Okay, so the Antichrist is one who opposes the anointed. He says, no, 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 you don't need the son to get to the father. And then there's this that says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist that does not confess that Jesus came from God. And then the, the fifth and final time where John uses the term Antichrist is in his next epistle. So if you flip over a page or two, to Second John, you find in verse 7, John gives us a slightly different definition. He says, For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Pastor Robert explained to us this whole idea of Gnosticism, and there were some who believed that Jesus came as a spiritual being, but not in physical form. And John says, you know what? That's also opposed to a solid teaching of who Christ is. Okay? So we've got all these different understandings of what Antichrist is. And John says, just so you know, Jesus warned you these guys are coming, and I'm going to remind you again. But stand fast. Be assured. 
How do we know who these antichrists are? Well, we've been given those definitions. They deny that Jesus came in bodily form. They deny that Jesus came from God. They deny that Jesus is the only way to God. Anyone who takes away from the the gospel of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, anyone who adds to the gospel something else beyond the sufficiency of Jesus Christ is opposed to Christ. Be careful. How do we spot these folks, right? Let's go to verse 19 of 1 John chapter 2. John goes on and he makes a, a statement to those that he's desiring to assure and to affirm. That is, those who are a part of the body of Christ, those who are in the church. And John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Talk about a verse that gets used out of context. I actually used it last week in a cheeky form, referring to uh, our brother Benjamin, uh, who had been a part of our church for a while and had moved away to Japan and God brought him back and said, he went out from among us, right? Bad application. What John is trying to call out here is he's trying to assure these believers to beware of the false teachers in their midst. Now, he's not talking about church members that move away. He's not talking about even false converts, right? We think of Jesus in John chapter 6. Everybody got well fed and then they took off because the teachings were hard and Jesus says to his disciples, he said, you're going to leave too? Peter says, where else would we go? We're also not talking about People who have uh, been the tares growing among the wheat. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus talks about the parables of the seed. There are some seeds that, that were sown on the path, and the devil came and snatched them up. And there were some seeds that were sown on the rock, and they, they sprouted for just a minute, and then he died all off. There were others that, that grew, and they were choked off by the thorns, And that's not what John's talking about here. He's not talking about false converts. He's not talking about those that have been in church for a while and then kind of bugger off because they don't really have a faith. What he's talking about here very specifically are those who would be in the midst of the church opposing the gospel. It's very interesting that this morning for those who joined for adult Sunday school, we heard a little bit about how secular psychology begins to creep its way into the church. Some of the things that creep their way into the church that we need to be careful of aren't, on the surface, rank heresy, right? They're subtle things that come in, and we're warned to be careful of those. We're warned to be careful of of those people that bring in that message. John's not the only apostle that gives these warnings of false teachers. I want to show you just a couple of quick examples. First is from Galatians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, a chosen instrument of the gospel to the Gentiles, warns the Galatians of those who would come in and distort the gospel. Paul says, beginning at verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even we Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to this one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is a very serious warning. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 also warns of those false teachers that have crept into their midst. Listen to what he says, beginning at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will, bring secretly, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Do you you see that there? It's bringing in secretly destructive heresies. And these aren't like rogue Christians that went sideways in their theology. What Peter tells us is these ones, just as though there is a sovereign election from eternity 
past for those who are his, there's also from eternity past condemnation for those who would oppose the anointed. This isn't new information. Finally, in Jude, an entire one-chapter letter focused on addressing false teachers, we find Jude saying, beginning at verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Okay? So what we have there is the other apostles being in agreement with what John is saying. Watch out, there are some who are among you that are teaching that which opposes the anointed truth of who Jesus Christ is. Be careful. But going back to verse 19, there's also something really important for us to understand about what John is saying to the recipients of this letter. They went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Look at the the but statement there. But they went out that it might be plain that they are all not of us. Okay? So for the body of believers, isn't it hard when people go out from among us? Right? So John's trying to assure all these people of the, the certainty of their salvation, and then they're scratching their heads, but wait, people have left. But wait, they were, they were teaching something different. They started out sitting right next to us and not the, now they're not here anymore. And John says, hey, your assurance is intact. Christ has paid it all on your price. He has helped you. <laughs> he has done it all to overcome for you. Sin, the world, and the devil. These other ones, don't be disheartened. They left because they didn't know the truth of Christ. John goes on to to begin to address a different concern that they might have. They they started to think as people left from around them, maybe maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe those other folks have the the right teaching and, and we've got it wrong. And so verse 20, oh, verse 20. This has been working on me all week, so hope to have you out of here by the second quarter. We'll see how it goes. John says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. Now, this is important because the anointing idea that I shared with you from 1 Samuel chapter 16 at the beginning would have been the belief of a, of a Jewish first century Christian, right? That anointing would have brought to mind King David. It would have brought to mind an unlikely sovereign election, a purposeful consecration, and a Holy Spirit indwelling. But you know what? There were others in the church that didn't come from that background. They came from perhaps Greek polytheism. Or, or maybe they just drifted in and they ha- didn't have much of a background at all. But it's important to understand that anointing may have meant something different to those folks. I came across a commentary that says this. To this we add, to the Greek world, it was also known of anointing, that anointing was one of the ceremonies initiated into the mystery religions in which a man was supposed to gain special knowledge of or contact with God or the gods, right? So there's a pagan version of anointing, and those people would say, hey, I've got an anointing. I know this about the gods. I've been given this special revelation. And as false teachers came in, This commentary goes on to say, the false teachers must have been claiming that they had a special anointing which gave them a special knowledge of God. John's answer that it is the ordinary Christian who has the true anointing, the anointing which Jesus gives. Do you catch that? The anointing that Jesus gives. That's the the basic knowledge of who he is. There's nothing else that needs to be added to that. We'll come back to that in a second. But for those first century believers to be told that you've been given the anointing, okay, we're good. All those other anointings, don't have to worry about that. Cheekily, next week's message is is called Awaiting the Anointed. And in a typo, I was sending to Anne, Awaiting the Anointing. If anybody tells you at this church that they're awaiting the anointing, 
please remove them from this desk, okay? The anointed has come, and your anointing is already done, okay? So understand that. But you have been anointed by who? By the Holy One. By the Holy One. Now, this is not an anointing of oil. This is not an anointing by some mystical power. This is an anointing by the Holy One. What does this mean? Well, Peter identifies the Holy One, right? In that same passage that I made reference to in John chapter 6, where everybody leaves, and Peter is asked, to whom, to whom will you go? He says, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the anointing that these believers, these ordinary believers have received is an anointing from Christ himself. To understand that, do one more detour to the Old Testament, okay? And since the men got together this week and did what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the hardest text in the Old Testament or one of, let's go there. <laughs> Daniel chapter 9, if you would. The prophet Daniel, pointing forward with visions that are indeed hard to understand. In fact, Jesus refers to the prophet Daniel and he says, let the reader understand, right? So this means this requires Holy Spirit discernment to understand. But guess what? We have the Holy Spirit, amen? So if we look at chapter 9, beginning at verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are de decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to, anone, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks." Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now, we're not going to talk about the weeks. I invite you to do some study. There's a commercial, I think, um, uh, Pastor Schroeder here will walk you through uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones on a Thursday night should you want to come and, and learn more about this. But what I can tell you with clarity is that when we see Daniel pointing to the finishing of transgression, to the ending of sin, to the atoning of iniquity, and to everlasting righteousness, there is, can only be one that's being talked about here. Just one. The anointed one. And what's really incredible is, is verse 26 to me. It says, And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Take that in. That's the gospel. That is the anointed one, the one who would come from the line of David, the one who would forever be seated on the throne, the one who would put an end to iniquity and to atone for sin and end transgression and reign in everlasting righteousness. He'd be cut off. How incredible is that? And that points us to another anointing. Would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26? We have a, an unusual anointing captured in the, in the Gospels. For those of you who are doing the Bible reading program, we've been getting a good dose of Luke. And this account is actually in Matthew and Mark and John. Luke doesn't give us this one. So um, let's set our eyes on this peculiar anointing. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 6. This is the anointed one, you see. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. 
For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is the God-man. He's at the house of a leper. Where would you not expect to find a man who is holy and righteous and, and clean and pure? He's in the house of a leper. And Mary, herself a, perhaps of dubious origin, comes in and she, she has this alabaster flask, which cost her a great deal. And she identifies that Jesus is the anointed one. And she, in doing what she did, she anoints him. And Jesus calls out the symbolism here. She's anointing him because he's being prepared for burial. The God-man, in the prime of his life, 30-something years old, sinless, sent from eternity past, himself being co-equal with God the Father would come. And she identified him. And, and she anointed him. And Jesus said, you know what? Wherever my gospel is proclaimed, to the end of this time when the gospel is proclaimed, they're going to talk about her. Now let me ask you this in terms of application. Does our response to what the anointed one has already done for us at all resemble what she did for the anointed one before he gave, down, gave his life? A book some of us are reading these days is written by a Scottish pastor named A.B. Bruce. And he writes in his book, The Training of the Twelve, this statement. Listen carefully to it and examine our hearts as we consider that gift of anointing the anointed one. Bruce says, From their lips, the touching narrative passed in due course to the gospel records to be read with a thrill of delight to the end of time. Wherever the gospel is truly preached, the story of this anointing is sure to be prized as the best possible illustration of the spirit which moved Jesus to lay down his life as also being the spirit of Christianity that manifests itself in the lives of sincere believers. The breaking of the alabaster box is a beautiful symbol of Christ's love to us and the love that we owe to him. As Mary broke her box of ointment and poured forth its precious contents, so Christ broke his body and shed his precious blood. You see, that anointed one is the one who anoints every ordinary Christian. Back at verse 20 of John, 1 John chapter 2, John encourages the believers in saying, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. This one foretold through all of Scripture that it would come and lay down his life has given us this anointing. Praise God for that. If you don't understand that anointing, if you don't understand what Christ has, has done for you, we're going to unpack that together a bit. But first, in, in verse 20, the statement here ends with John saying, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Interesting statement. Every time I read it, I get it wrong. You tend to transpose these words just a bit and it says, you all have knowledge or you have all knowledge. And it turns out that if you use scripture to understand scripture, it's actually a very valid statement that Jesus as he explains the anointing that he gave to his disciples, that we actually have been given all knowledge. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. So, we could read this as, y'all have knowledge, like plural, you all have knowledge, or we could understand it in the context of how Jesus explains it, that through the Holy Spirit we have all knowledge. But we have to understand what this means, right? Does that mean that the moment we come to Christ, we automatically know the atomic weight of hydrogen? Or, or that we know everything there is to know about the natural world that God created? No. Does it mean that when we come to Christ, we immediately have all no doctrinal knowledge and we're ready to be a know-it-all and debate with anybody on a street corner? No. If we're going through that Bible reading plan, Every verse you read, you should become more and more humbled at how little you know of Scripture. I mean, I've learned stuff about Genesis this month that I, in 20 years of looking at my Bible, I've never read. 
right? But what John is saying here is that you have knowledge. And this knowledge is sufficient for you to have salvation. This knowledge is sufficient for you to know who Jesus is and what he did on your behalf. Do you have to know much more than that? In verse 21, John goes on to say, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Think about this for a second. John says, I write to you not because you don't know the truth. The, the church, as believers, we can sometimes yawn at the gospel. We can sometimes say, you know what, that was pretty basic teaching. I think we've heard that one before. Right? And what does John say? I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. He's affirming them in what they understand. And he's reminding them. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And then he goes on and saying, hey, you know these basics, but check it against what you have been taught. Verse 22 he says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Okay, so now we're being told that anything that sets itself up against the truth is something we need to be aware of. Now, what is truth? John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself truth incarnate. But then, later on in that very same chapter, John promises, Jesus promises, and John records for us, that Jesus promises that upon professing faith in him, he'd give us a helper. And that helper is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit helps us know and discern what is truth. Verses 15 through 17 say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, so stop there for a second. If you did take notes, we got three things about this anointing, right? The three things about the anointing are that it's an unlikely sovereign election. It's a purposeful consecration. And it's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Marvel at that because, you know what? That has now been what Christ has shared with us. You see, David's anointing pointed to Christ's coming. Christ's coming means that that applies to us. If you are in Christ, you can rest assured that you are sovereignly elected from eternity past. We saw that in Ephesians. If you are in Christ, you should rest assured that you are purposefully consecrated. Your life has a purpose, that God wants to use you. And thirdly, you should rest assured that you are anointed with the Holy Spirit and his spirit of truth indwells you. And that means you can spot a lie. That means you can spot that danger that John is calling into view. John chapter 16, to drive this home, verses 12 through 14 Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, and he has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That Holy Spirit indwells the ordinary believer. No second anointing coming. That anointing is sufficient for you to be able to spot what truth is. And know that which is the lie. Now, as we move through this book, we're, we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but we should know that there's a contrast being made throughout what John teaches us. There's light, there's dark, there's love, there's hate, there's the world, there's the things of the Lord. There's truth, and there's a lie. So we're just told that Jesus himself is truth incarnate, and that truth comes from him, and that his spirit of truth indwells and anoints the ordinary believer. But guess what? There's also one from whom the lie originates, okay? Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Make a note of this verse, John chapter 8, verse 44. 
Jesus is, is talking to those who are opposing the anointed, and he says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay, remember this when we approach the book of John throughout this. There's only two options for who our father is. Our father is either God and we've been given adoption through Jesus Christ or we're still back in the flesh. We're still back in the sin and our father is the devil, the father of lies. And that father of lies is crafty. And he'll take something that is truth and he'll insert falsehood into it. And that's why John says, because no lie is of the truth. I want to tell you as we look at verse 23, that if you're here today and and a lot of the things that are taught from this church sound like they're true to you, but not everything's adding up, I just want to remind you that through the power of God's word and through the Holy Spirit, he will indwell you and forgive you and bring you to a point that you can understand that there is only one way. There's so many ways to get this wrong and there's only one to get it right. There are atheists that say in their heart, there is no God. The Bible says that's a fool. There are other people who are not atheists. They believe in God, right? We've got neighbors next door that share half of our scripture with us. Is that close enough? I've sat with people who are of the Muslim faith and tried to say, well, you know, we're also monotheists. We also believe there's only one God and we're also people of the book. Is that close enough? No. But are we also exposed to a message that says, you know what, Jesus, I believe in God and Jesus, I think he was a great teacher. Man, he had some great stuff to teach. Man, he he has some great principles. I love that. I love Jesus too. It's not enough to marvel at the humanity of Christ. We must worship his divinity, period. We must understand that this is an exclusive gospel. And even for those of us who have been around different varieties of teaching, we must be careful that nothing takes away from the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not something else we have to do. He's done it all. Any other gospel? Watch out. And that's why John calls us out with such clarity in verse 23. He says, No one who denies the, father, denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You see that? You confess the, the Son and you have access to the Father. A verse we all know well is John 6, verse 44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's the Father that does the work of drawing us to the Son. And it's the Son who says to the Father on our behalf, give him my helper. Give him the anointing. Fill him. Fill her. That they may know that they are mine. There's only one way. It's clear. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And John goes on to say, and he says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. For if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. Eternal life. As we understand all that John wants us to to know about our salvation. He wants us to know that we have assurance because of what Christ has done. He wants us to know that we have a promise. There's lots of promises, right? He promised us that deceivers would come. He promised us that the last days would come. He promised us that there would be hardship, that there would be trial. But above all, he promised us eternal life. But as I think about that, we've prayed for brothers and sisters in our midst that have spent part of their week face-to-face with death. But the hope for the believer is not just eternal life, not just that death is done, not just that sin is done, but that we would see Jesus face-to-face. Eternity with Christ. And as God's word explains to us this, this beautiful mystery, as we're drawn to the Father, we have the Son. And we're sealed and anointed with the Holy Spirit. And our promises 
eternity worshiping that Savior, worshiping with that assurance. I want to end this morning looking again at the last verses of the passage that Brother Rob read to us this morning from John chapter 6. Beginning at verse 43, it says, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. One last passage. 1 Timothy chapter 6. As we apply this to our lives, we understand that we have the promise of eternal life because of his anointing. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of that, church. Take hold of that. He goes on to say, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you chose to send us the Son, that you sent him in human form, but being in very nature God. We thank you that he came and he fulfilled the long-awaited promise of the Anointed One, Sovereignly declared, purposely set apart, set apart for the purpose of dying on our behalf, laying his life down on the cross for us and for taking it up. And in doing so, Lord God, you give us as believers not only salvation, but also an anointing, an anointing from, from the Holy One, a spirit that indwells us and allows us to identify truth. Lord God, we just ask as we consider what you have done for us that we would behold the truth of who you are, that you alone can save us, you alone can take away our sins, that you alone help us overcome the world, that you alone help us to overcome our adversary. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done on our behalf. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.